get to the bottom of what's truly healthy in this crazy, complex world. So you can take back what is rightfully yours. Welcome to the Health Sovereign Podcast. This is your host, Logan Christopher. Welcome. Today I will be reading the series of articles I put together, the special report I put together called The Corruption of the World Health Organization. I spent a lot of time working on this, digging deep, doing research to investigate the World Health Organization. Now, I knew previously from what I knew about the FDA and the CDC that to some degree this was going to be a regulatory captured agency with a revolving door going on, but I just was making that assumption before. I hadn't really dug into it. I was more focused on what's going on in the U.S. than the world just because of time constraints. But with this pandemic and especially all the stuff that was coming to light with the World Health Organization, with everything going on, I felt it was worth a deeper dive here. So I spent a good chunk of time on it. And in addition to the report, which you can get at logancrisfer.com who, with all that time spent, I felt it was worth recording here, perhaps reaching a wider audience because some people like to listen to stuff more so than read it. I do encourage you, if you enjoy this or... Uh, you want to dig a bit deeper, go look at the report because everything I say is referenced. Tons of references in there. You can click to see where I'm getting the data. Uh, I, I'm not saying trust me on any of this. You can go and look for yourself. In addition, there's a whole bunch of quotes here, hundreds of them. Uh, so I, I didn't say quote unquote would have probably drove me crazy doing that, uh, but in reading this aloud rather than reading it, a little bit maybe confusing as I switch from my voice to the voice of a person or report what's going on. So if things are confusing in that way, you may also go and check out the report. Lastly, I want to mention that this was written back in April. Events have unfolded further from that time. I didn't want to go and update everything going on. Uh, so Things are timestamped in the report, but it was all around April when I was writing this. So that is what's going on. There's a lot of information here, so this is going to be a long podcast. Let's just dive into it. And please do share this if you enjoy it. You can share to people at healthsovereign.com or also sharing the report, logancrisfer.com slash who. Share this around if you enjoy it. Here we go. Corruption of the World Health Organization Introduction I am not happy to have written this. I wish, truly wish, that the WHO was a shining beacon of health practices and humankind coming together to support each other. Alas, that is not what I find when I look at the data. Many people choose to stick their head in the sand about such issues. I get that. It's not fun to look at. It is tremendously disruptive to a calm, consensus worldview. Yet, I look for the truth, wherever it leads me. In my health journey, I saw 70-year-olds in amazing health as an ideal worth emulating. I found that simple things like changes to diet, elimination of environmental toxins, various lifestyle practices were all that was needed to cure many diseases. There were plenty of people that were bucking the standard medical system and were so much healthier for it. Personally, I would have been fine to go down this road myself, to continue building my businesses and teaching others who wanted to be taught. But they went too far, 
They started taking away rights. They made mandates on what I knew not to be in my own best interest for health, for me and my family. I knew I had to start to fight against this. Furthermore, they began to censor anyone who spoke up against this in subtle ways. With that happening, I knew I had to fight now before it was too late. So I started writing. I revealed the corruption hiding in plain sight. I named names. I wouldn't pull my punches any longer. Contrary to the public perception, the WHO and related organizations do not want us to be healthy, sovereign individuals. But I do, and I will fight for it. What follows is about 40 hours of research. While fairly comprehensive, it certainly doesn't cover everything, but will give you an overall glimpse into the WHO and how they operate. This is extensively referenced. I am not asking you to take my word for it. Perhaps that is why I quote people so much. Dig in yourself and verify these things. If I am wrong, if you can refute anything you see here, I would love to hear it. You can reach me directly at logan at legendarystrength.com. But I think if you do look, you'll find everything I say is backed up. The WHO is held up to be the worldwide authority on health. Based on their track record, they should not be. They are not my authority. I do not consent. If you agree with me and find this useful, please share this report freely. Send it to the people you've been talking to. Post it online. Do anything with it you choose as long as you keep it intact. You can link to it at loganchristopher.com who. And there is much more. I am writing regularly on all things related to this pandemic going on right now. My main focus is health, but I'm talking about economics, government, and more too. You can find my other articles and sign up to receive notifications of new ones at loganchristopher.com pandemic. Controversies of Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, WHO Director General. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus has served since 2017 as the Director General of the World Health Organization. He is the first non-medical doctor to do so, instead a PhD in community health. Previously, he was a Minister of Health from 2005 to 2012 and Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2012 to 2016 in Ethiopia. Tigray People's Liberation Front Tedros is a member of the TPLF, an ethnic-based leftist political party. The TPLF is actively listed as a perpetrator in the Global Terrorism Database based on 10 incidents from between 1976 in 1990. New York Times reports Tedros was the country's foreign minister and during this time the government suppressed dissent. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International reports described villages displaced, protesters massacred by the police, dissidents tortured, and journalists imprisoned. Dr. Tedros is not accused of participation but he is among the ruling party elite. The rights violations should never have happened, he said. Here is one such voice that fought against Tedros saying he was responsible. The Amharas are an ethnic group in Ethiopia, comprising one-third of the population. The Amhara Professionals Union produced this paper, International Organization's Leadership Recruitment Policies, the failed experiment of Dr. Tedros E. Gabriesos, candidacy for WHO Director General position. The executive summary lists out 13 points of which they say Tedros is guilty, specifically against their people. 1. Discrimination slash marginalization. 2. Crime against humanity. 3. 
systematic genocidal violence. Four, biased policies, inaction, and impartiality. Five, corruption and misuse of budget. Six, disregard for humanity. Seven, incompetency slash inaction. Eight, lack of transparency. Nine, malfeasance and risking public safety. Ten, poor judgment. Eleven, lack of accountability. Twelve, violation of basic human rights slash suppression of freedom of expression. Thirteen, lack of integrity slash truthfulness slash honesty. The document appears to back up all the claims with statistics and references in this 70-page document. The terrorist TPLF helped fund Tedros's bid for WHO director. Covering up cholera outbreaks? Tedros has been accused of covering up previous epidemics, specifically three times with cholera in Ethiopia. To be fair, these accusations were from an advisor to an opponent in his WHO directorship. Of course, Tedros denied these accusations. But these were not completely baseless. Earlier articles discussed unnamed health officials in Ethiopia, Tedros was top health person at the time, of not wanting to test what would ultimately be labeled acute watery diarrhea for the cholera microbes. This was because of fear of affecting food exports and tourism. A telling section of that New York Times article says, under the international health regulations, which apply to all WHO members, countries must accurately report disease outbreaks. But the WHO can officially report only what countries say. Historically, some countries have tried to cover up or play down outbreaks of human or animal diseases for fear that travel restrictions would be imposed, tourism would suffer, or food exports would be curtailed, or simply as a matter of national pride. The regulations were strengthened after China denied for months in 2003 that it had a serious outbreak of lethal respiratory disease in its southern cities. That outbreak ultimately became known as SARS for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome and spread to several other countries, including Canada. Elected as Director General of WHO Elections are done by secret ballots. This allows for backdoor deals to be cut. Lori Garrett, a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, tells of a prior election for the WHO director in 1991. I was in a queue at the post office when the conference room door flung open at my back and an enormous rolled rug flew out, narrowly missing me and landing with a loud thud that couldn't cover the sound of an African Minister of Health's roaring voice. A rug? A rug? The large East African woman shouted at a trio of Japanese diplomats scampering out of the chamber. You think you can buy my vote with a rug? Do you think I am that cheap? The enraged minister then loudly delineated a list of promises, aka bribes, the Japanese had reportedly made to other voting members of the executive board, including construction of a hospital, payment of school fees for the children of Switzerland-based nationals employed at the WHO, promised employment in plush Geneva, for friends and family of the would-be voter, and a range of big construction projects. The episode was astounding, not because it transpired, but that it did so in front of many witnesses, including an American journalist. Understanding that backroom deals are made for organizations such as the WHO, and certainly not the only one, is helpful for understanding geopolitics. New York Times reports, Tedros was elected with strong support of China. He has firmly backed Beijing's claims to have been open and transparent about the outbreak, despite strong evidence that it suppressed early reports on infections. In 2012, the African Union headquarters was built in Ethiopia for $200 million. This was the largest construction project since the 1970s paid for by China. 
This was one construction project of many. CNN reports, while Beijing defends its aid practices on the grounds that they are neutral and respect recipient nation sovereignty, Chinese money is not wholly unpolitical. China's president, Xi Jinping, pledged $60 billion for development in Africa, which included $4 billion for the Ethiopia-Djibouti Railway. Tedros himself mentioned in 2015 on Facebook, under the Go Global program of China, we expect increased Chinese investment flow to Ethiopia. The eight industrial parks identified throughout Ethiopia, some already under construction, will facilitate the migration of Chinese companies to Ethiopia. I don't know exactly what sort of deals went down, but it's clear that Tedros is very much tied to people in power in the Chinese Communist Party and the money that flows because of such. President Robert Mugambe Current events are not the first time that Tedros is facing calls to resign. In 2017, he appointed Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe as a Who's Goodwill Ambassador for Non-Communicable Disease in Africa. Here's a bio video if you're not familiar with this socialist revolutionary turned dictator. Check out the post for the link. A Guardian article wrote, Mugabe rigged elections and began a program of land reform in which white farmers were forcibly evicted to make way for ZANU-PF party cronies or black Zimbabweans who lacked the skills and capital to farm. This helped throw the economy into disarray. Hyperinflation ran riot and supermarket shelves were empty. The once proud school and health systems began to crumble. The political environment also became increasingly hostile, with activists and journalists persecuted, jailed, or murdered. More than 200 people died in political violence around the 2008 election, which Mugabe was widely seen as having stolen from the MDC's Morgan Tsvangile. Tedros said, I am honored to be joined by President Mugabe of Zimbabwe, a country that places universal health coverage and health promotion at the center of its policies to provide health care to all. Please note that Mugabe did not use Zimbabwe's healthcare, instead traveling to Singapore for himself and his family. Physicians for Human Rights, PHR, wrote a withering report of Mugabe's government. What happens when a government presides over the dramatic reversal of its population's access to food, clean water, basic sanitation, and healthcare? When government policies lead directly to the shuttering of hospitals and clinics, the closing of its medical school, and the beatings of health workers? We don't need to wonder. It is happening now in Zimbabwe. PHR has witnessed the devastation caused by the willful neglect of Zimbabwe's people by the government of Robert Mugabe. Even the U.S. State Department said, This appointment clearly contradicts the United Nations' ideals of respect for human rights and human dignity. The appointment was rescinded under the private and public outcry. Wasn't this obviously a bad idea to Tedros before it happened? Many think that this appointment was payback to both Mugabe and China. Hillel Neuer, executive director of the watchdog organization UN Watch, told me, it's clear that this was a prize, if not compensation for something. Tedros may have been rewarding Mugabe for supporting his nomination to the WHO post last year when Tedros was Ethiopia's foreign minister and Mugabe headed the African Union. Beijing strongly supports Mugabe, and Mugabe has repaid the favor, helping to ease pressure from Africans who criticize China for exploiting Africa's natural resources. In December 2015, Mugabe gushed about Xi at the China-Africa summit in Johannesburg from the Washington Post. Relationship to Taiwan The day after being elected as director, Tedros reiterated the WHO's adherence to the One China Principle, meaning that Taiwan would not be recognized. 
This has led to the well-circulated video of WHO official, Canadian epidemiologist Bruce Alward, dodging questions about Taiwan. This is particularly interesting because Taiwan said its doctors had heard from mainland colleagues that medical staff were getting ill, a sign of human-to-human -human transmission. Taipei officials said they reported this to the International Health Regulations, a WHO framework for exchange of epidemic prevention and response data between 196 countries and Chinese health authorities on December 31st. Taiwanese government officials told the Financial Times the warning was not shared with other countries. Handling the coronavirus pandemic. Here is a good and short overview video on the WHO's response, which covers some of the other things mentioned here. See the link in the report. On January 14th, the WHO tweeted, Preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of the novel coronavirus, identified in Wuhan, China. On January 28th, Tedros talked about China, including the transparency they have demonstrated, including sharing data. Please note that China has officially revised their stats, increasing them by 50% as reported on April 17th, as if these new numbers should be taken as the truth. Meanwhile, coronavirus whistleblowers in China are still missing. The WHO didn't even send a team to China until February 10th. On February 15th, Tedros stated, China has bought the world time. Meanwhile, John McKinsey, a member of the WHO Executive Committee, publicly stated that international action would have been different if not for China's reprehensible obfuscation of the outbreak's extent. In a recent report put out by the WHO, Tedros stated, it has now been more than 100 days since WHO was notified of the first cases of what we call COVID-19, and much has changed since we launched the first strategic preparedness and response plan two months ago. One of the main things we've learned is that the faster all cases are found, tested, and isolated, the harder we make it for this virus to spread. Are you kidding me? I've never been a health minister. I'm not part of the WHO. I'm not an infectious disease expert. But I could have told you from the very beginning of this that finding cases, testing them, and then isolating them would help. Seriously, this is what you've learned? Today, April 22nd, he said, most countries are still in the early stages of their epidemics, and some that were affected early in the pandemic are now starting to see a resurgence in cases. Make no mistake, we have a long way to go. This virus will be with us for a long time. There's no question that stay-at-home orders and other physical distancing measures have successfully suppressed transmission in many countries, but this virus remains extremely dangerous. Since the WHO is the leader of the response for this pandemic, that is almost assuredly what is going to happen. Again, I ask, is Tedros merely inept at his job, or is all this a sign of corruption? I leave you to judge for yourself. Yet this only scratches the surface. In the next article, I'll be detailing patterns of corruption from the WHO over the years. Lots of other people have been covering Tedros as of late, but I went far and wide to round up what's coming next. History is the best indicator of future performance. History of the WHO helps give perspective on current events. Because they are the worldwide health authority, now we should know if they deserve that status. WHO, Patterns of Corruption, Part 1 in this post, the goal is to paint a broader picture of the controversies surrounding the WHO over the years. It ballooned in size because the more you dig, the more you find, so it will be split into two parts. The goal of this is to make a more critically informed decision on whether we really should be looking to this organization as an authority on health in the COVID-19 pandemic or any other matter of health. But first, a little bit of how I feel is best to think about the WHO or any large organization.
Who controls the who? Is it China? Is it Bill Gates? Is it Big Pharma? Many people are latching straight onto their favorite enemy right now. But control is not a useful word to be using. The world is messy. Lots of people want to dismiss any conspiracy theories because they often point out that control of something so complex or too many people involved which would be complicit that this idea is ludicrous. And I agree with that for the most part. Systems are complicated with many interlocking parts. That's why, the way I see it, it's not so much about control as about influence. If Big Pharma can get policies and decisions swayed in their favor just 10% of the time, as I'll prove shortly they've done over and over again, that gives them an unfair advantage. If one high up person is in their pocket and they make a decision on a policy that has lasting impact, this has occurred. This then means, through time, they'll continue to benefit, allowing for more similar actions to be taken. In other words, the 10% compounds over time. It also means that one person becomes two, becomes five. Any degree of corruption at high levels allows for more corrupt people, not less, to gain more power. After all, almost all of these positions are appointed, not elected. And we know elections can be gamed too. Corruption spreads. In a backroom deal, someone basically says, you do this thing for us, you'll get the position. With the position, you help us gain more profits and power, so we incentivize the next person. At the same time, corruption stops good people from being successful. They get locked out in one fashion or another. We'll see examples of that from employees of the WHO blowing the whistle later on. If Gates can earmark certain funds he donates to specific projects, and those projects involve buying drugs from companies he is invested in personally or through his foundation, that's a serious conflict of interest at the very least. He then gains money that allows him to further influence the WHO. This topic will be explored further in part two. Understand, because the WHO is a large organization with about 7,000 employees, these kinds of things can be occurring while there are also legitimate good life-saving projects also being done. It's not black or white or an either or thing. It is both and situation. Although systems are important, understand that these come down to people making decisions. Thus, it may be best to think of the people involved in a few different buckets. Number one, there are some really good people that are genuinely striving to solve the world's health problems. Number two, there are some that are simply bureaucratic types that may not influence things one way or another. They're largely just doing their jobs, punching the clock. Number three, there are some that are undoubtedly and fully corrupt. Remember, sociopaths exist, and they have a higher than average chance of rising in position because of such. Number four, there are those that allow corruption in small ways, such as a consultancy fee from a pharmaceutical company. As we know from doctors that attend pharma-sponsored events, meals, or receive kickbacks, they may think they're then making independent choices, but their actions show they've been swayed. One study example here. The saying is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. With these types of people involved, and with money involved, corruption is pretty much inevitable, even if the majority of people are in group one. The question is not whether the who is corrupt or not. Instead, the big question is how much corruption is involved. How much harmful influence is involved. This exploration is not exhaustive, but is meant to give us some answers to these questions. Trust who? 
Several things mentioned here I found out because of the documentary Trust Who by Lillian Frank. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it free. This video was recently removed from Vimeo a few days ago due to violating their policies. Here you can see comments on this from the producer of the film as well as a clip inside. Link in the report. If you're interested, I suggest watching the documentary soon. Amazon has similarly censored documentaries before due to political pressure, so it may not be available there for long. More on increasing censorship surrounding The Who at the end of Part 2. I report below on several things learned from that documentary, but certainly not everything, and also share other things that are not covered there at all. Tobacco Science and Who Consultants Tobacco having big effects on health, it has been a major focus of the World Health Organization for a long time. Of course, tobacco science, lobbying, and various other methods were very effective in keeping this from happening for many years. Thomas Zeltner, one of the good guys, chaired a committee which looked at Big Tobacco's influence on the WHO itself. This resulted in the report, Tobacco Company Strategies to Undermine Tobacco Control Activities at the World Health Organization, in July 2000. Just a few quotes from inside. Evidence from tobacco industry documents reveals that tobacco companies have operated for many years with the deliberate purpose of subverting the efforts of the World Health Organization to control tobacco use. The attempted subversion has been elaborate, well-financed, sophisticated, and usually invisible. In one of their most significant strategies for influencing whose tobacco control activities, Tobacco companies developed and maintained relationships with current or former WHO staff, consultants, and advisors. In some cases, tobacco companies hired or offered future employment to former WHO or UN officials in order to indirectly gain valuable contacts within these organizations that might assist in its goal of influencing WHO activities. Of greatest concern, tobacco companies have, in some cases, had their own consultants in positions at WHO paying them to serve the goals of tobacco companies while working for WHO. Some of these cases raise serious questions about whether the integrity of WHO decision-making has been compromised. Tobacco is unlike other threats to health. Reversing the epidemic of tobacco use will be about more than fighting addiction and disease. It will be about overcoming a determined and powerful industry, many of whose most important counter-strategies are carried out in secret. It is so interesting to read through this 260-page document. I've only skimmed it. The vast majority of tactics and strategies are laid out. It is well known that Big Tobacco engage in this type of multi-pronged warfare and propaganda. But most people just can't see it being done in other areas like medicine, despite lots of proof of it happening. Captured Agency by Big Pharma If you're not familiar with the term, a captured agency is a government agency unduly influenced by economic interest groups directly affected by its decisions. With capture, those groups are able to shape regulations and policies that further benefit them. The following comes from WikiLeaks from back in 2009. This is a confidential pharmaceutical industry trade association dossier about the WHO expert working group on R&D financing. The International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations gave its members four documents, a non-public draft report of the WHO EWG and a non-public comparative analysis done by the working group. The 
IFPMA overview of the EWG comparative analysis and the IFPMA summary slide on the EWG draft report. The compilation of documents shows the influence of Big Pharma on the policy-making decisions of the WHO, the UN body safeguarding public health. These confidential documents were obtained by the drug industry before their public release to WHO member states, scheduled to be released May 2010. The document also illustrates that the WHO expert working group was highly responsive to industry lobbying, a result that public health groups had feared since early 2009, when the expert group met with the industry but refused to meet with public health groups known to be industry critics. For example, here's a quote from inside of one of the documents. While the overall result is in line with most of the industry positions on this matter, please note that the EWG is currently meeting and there is still room for them to introduce new language. We will update you as new information becomes available and will keep monitoring closely the process in these days should any input be requested from friendly EWG members. This is the definition of captured agency. Understand, it doesn't mean that Big Pharma wholly owns the WHO. It means they're able to get some policies made in their favor. Those policies typically involve the buying of their product, giving them more profits that can then be used to do more lobbying and regulatory capture. Here is a specific example of the results of such. WHO Fueling the Opioid Epidemic my medical monopoly musings covered some of the ruthless tactics of pharmaceutical companies in spreading opioids across the U.S. and the world. See number 20 through 24 for specifics. How they did fraudulent science to show that opioids weren't addictive. How they bribed doctors and professional organizations in hospitals. How they even got into the opioid addiction treatment business to cover both ends of the game. How the DEA tracked the numbers but did nothing. Before my research this morning, I was not aware of how the WHO was involved, but of course they were. In 2019, U.S. Congress representatives Catherine Clark and Hal Rogers released the report Corrupting Influence Purdue and the WHO, Exposing Dangerous Opioid Manufacturer Influence at the World Health Organization. Some revelations include the WHO Collaborating Center for Policy and Communications and Cancer Care at the University of Wisconsin Pain and Policy Studies Group received $1.6 million from Purdue Pharma from 1999 to 2010. The official WHO guidelines, Achieving Balance in National Opioid Control Policy, Guidelines for Assessment, relies on the oft-repeated Purdue claim that dependence occurs in less than 1% of patients, despite no scientific evidence supporting this claim and a multitude of studies contradicting it. The WHO changed its policy to recommend OxyContin in both steps two and three of its three-step pain ladder, whereas previously they were just in one step. This was Purdue's goal to sell more drugs. The WHO is unambiguously recommending that highly addictive opioids should be available to children even though they openly recognize that there is little evidence to support that recommendation and that any further research on the topic would likely change the suggested course of action. Wow. Actually, it doesn't surprise me because drug companies do prey on children. The report concludes, the World Health Organization is intended to be the steward of the public trust. By allowing Purdue and the opioid industry to influence guidelines on how opioids should be prescribed and regulated, the WHO has violated that trust. The agency owes the public an explanation. The WHO must explain why these documents have been crafted with the input of people with decades of financial relationships with the opioid industry and written to include specific policy changes envisioned by Purdue. 
With major money, you can influence plenty of people and organization, as this map shows. Pain management is just one of many topics covered by the WHO. Former WHO Director General warns of pharma industry taking over. Haftan Mahler was a WHO Director General from 1973 to 1988. In 1988, the Danish newspaper Politiken warned against exactly this happening with the pharmaceutical industry. He was quoted as saying, the industry is taking over WHO. That was back then. Remember, once corruption has a foothold, it expands over time. The WHO changed their policy to allow private funding in or around 2005. This allows for more industry influence. An article in the Journal of Integrative Medicine and Therapy by Soren Ventegut states, the results from the Cochrane reviews, which most researchers regard as a much more reliable source of information on medicine than the data coming from the pharmaceutical industry itself, clash harshly with the recommendations of WHO in its drug directories. Many drugs listed in the WHO drug directories, like WHO's model list of essential medicines, have no value as medicine, according to Cochrane reviews, since the drugs are dangerous, often harmful, and without significant beneficial effects for the patient. Unfortunately, the drug companies now have their influence spread into the Cochrane reviewers and databases too, but it started out as a noble and useful venture, but they couldn't allow good science to continue to refute them. Another WHO whistleblower. At a meeting between Director General and prospective vaccine manufacturer, most of our colleagues were excluded. Me too. I was head of a department of the WHO and one of the Director General's closest associates, an important member of staff in the organization. On that specific day, I went down to the conference room and the person at the door said, no, this is a private meeting. Even though I was a leading official at the WHO, responsible for an important topic that was under discussions there, I wasn't allowed to enter. That demonstrates that there wasn't enough transparency about what was being negotiated. Dr. German Velasquez, WHO Director of the Secretariat on Public Health, Innovation, and Intellectual Property until 2010. I'm hypothesizing here, but such a meeting could involve an agreement on a policy or decision that would benefit such a manufacturer, just like we saw evidence of with opioids. Likely, there would be some sort of quid pro quo in doing so for the WHO or specific people at the WHO. Once again, there are good people at the WHO who really want to help. Unfortunately, these people are locked out, quit, or otherwise have their influence minimized as the corrupting influence spreads. I was trying to find out the specific dates Valasquez worked at this position, and I stumbled on an interesting report about him. Back in 2001, he was the director of WHO's Drug Action Program. He was mugged and robbed in Rio de Janeiro. Two days later, he was attacked again in Miami on Lincoln Road with one attacker saying, let's hope he learned a lesson from Rio. Stop criticizing the pharmaceutical industry. Then 10 days later, he received a midnight phone call which asked him, are you afraid? He asked what this was about and the reply was, Miami, Lincoln Road. Later, the same voice called him, telling him not to attend a World Trade Organization meeting on drug patent rights. As is shown across the world, Big Pharma has ways of getting people aligned to its interests and of criticizing, hampering, and threatening those that refuse to play ball. What else would you expect from organized crime, which a pharmaceutical industry fits the definition of? Swine flu, H1N1 pandemic. Back in 2009, ABC News reported, the World Health Organization may have inadvertently triggered a new wave of fear over the threat of a swine flu pandemic today by suggesting that up to 2 billion people could become infected if the current outbreak worsens. 
only 11 years ago, yet if you review this case, you see some interesting parallels. The WHO changed their rules about levels of pandemic for this one, lessening the severity of disease required. When then asked by a CNN reporter to explain the decision to declare Phase 5 in light of the fact that the WHO had previously maintained a pandemic entailed large numbers of human fatalities and severe illness, the response of the Secretariat was to delete its guidelines from its website. The reason for the change? A level 5 pandemic would then activate policies already in place where countries had to buy drugs and vaccines. The Council of Europe is an official United Nations observer. They launched an inquiry into the WHO's handling of the pandemic scandal. The resolution for the inquiry stated, In order to promote their patented drugs and vaccines against flu, pharmaceutical companies influence scientists and official agencies responsible for public health standards to alarm governments worldwide and make them squander tight health resources for inefficient vaccine strategies and needlessly exposing millions of healthy people to the risk of an unknown amount of side effects of insufficiently tested vaccines. Wolfgang Wodar, chair of the Council of Europe, states in the documentary, the situation was evaluated correspondingly by the Council of Europe. Reprimand was issued. The lack of transparency, the role of the experts who were being paid by the pharmaceutical industry. Then changes were demanded, but the WHO didn't respond to the Council of Europe. The WHO only turned up for the first hearing and then didn't come again. It didn't have to. It isn't obliged to supply us with any information. We can't demand to confiscate the files, look through them. It is impossible. There isn't anybody who can do those things. And there's no investigating commission, like in Parliament, where the MPs can go and say, something has to stop and then everybody has to turn up and show their files. There's nothing like that. The WHO can operate in a very clandestine fashion. So nothing much changed. As I previously reported, in the U.S., the CDC did similar things, including stopping actual counting of the swine flu cases while reporting large numbers and telling people to get the vaccine. Rampant conflicts of interest. How is this all possible? Conflicts of interest, of course. Articles in the BMJ point out more detail. Who enduringly failed to have a policy regarding conflicts of interest? Juhani Eskola, Finland, a member of the WHO Group Strategic Advisory Group of Experts, SAGE, has received 6 million euros for his research center from the vaccine manufacturer GlaxoSmithKline during 2009. Who chose not to disclose financial conflicts of interest among industry-sponsored experts guiding its influenza policy? Disclosure is not always clear. Regarding these, the BBC reported, it is not clear whether these conflicts were notified privately by WHO to governments around the world, the BMJ said, and a request to see conflict of interest declarations was turned down. In addition, membership of the Emergency Committee, which advised WHO's Director General Margaret Tran on declaring an influenza pandemic, has been kept secret. It means the names of the 16 committee members are known only to people within the WHO, and as such, their possible conflicts of interest with drug companies are unknown. Of course, as should be expected, the WHO dismissed this stuff as conspiracy theories. Let's see. You're having secret meetings. You're hiding conflicts of interest. You change your long-held rules and cover that up. Your partners make a boatload of money from doing so. But nothing to see here, folks. There's plenty more examples. Dr. Neil Ferguson reported receiving small consultancy fees from Baxter, GlaxoSmithKline, and Roche for serving on scientific advisory boards and presenting at symposiums. He also received limited amounts of consultancy fees from insurance companies, Swiss Re, RMS Limited, and Circo Limited.
a logistics company for advice on pandemic risk and planning. These payments occurred prior to 2008. You might recognize Ferguson's name as one of the people behind the Imperial College model for the coronavirus pandemic that was used as justification for many countries going into quarantine, the same model that was later downgraded in deaths. I'm very curious as to what exactly those small and limited consultancy fees are. He's part of SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, that advises the UK and don't reveal any information about their doing so because science done in secret is always the best way to do science. So we have a wide range of disclosed, partially disclosed, and undisclosed conflicts of interest. This, the money flowing, is how corruption occurs. It's not just Big Pharma, but we see it elsewhere too. Genetically modified food, pesticide use, or EMFs. Yeah, we haven't even covered those areas, but it happens in them all. And it happens in nuclear energy too. Who and Chernobyl? Drug companies are not the only regulatory capture problem. I don't know much about Chernobyl. It happened when I was one year old. Just recently, I watched the HBO limited series on it. Obviously, I do not take the show as what really happened, but it was eye-opening nonetheless. Here's what The Who says regarding Chernobyl on its website. A total of up to 4,000 people could eventually die of radiation exposure from the Chernobyl nuclear power plant accident nearly 20 years ago, an international team of more than 100 scientists has concluded. As of mid-2005, however, fewer than 50 deaths had been directly attributed to radiation from the disaster, almost all being highly exposed rescue workers, many who died within months of the accident, but others who died as late as 2004. 50 directly dead? That number seems very low if you know anything about radiation. Does it seem low to you? Robert Parsons, a freelance journalist, wrote, For 55 years, as of May 29, 2014, the World Health Organization has been under the heel of the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, in matters regarding ionizing radiation and health. The IAEA, whose mandate is the promotion of everything nuclear, has thus prevented the WHO from carrying out its public health mandate in a world more and more exposed to the lethal effects of ionizing radiation. If you want to dive deeper into this matter, then read Parsons' article. There's plenty more to this story, such as the 1995 WHO Chernobyl Conference, as organized by then-Director General Dr. Hiroshi Nakajima, that drew 700 scientists. Although the proceedings from the conference were promised, these never appeared. After retirement, Nakajima said that these were blocked by the IAEA. Meanwhile, the New York Academy of Sciences published a translation of a 2007 Russian publication that calculated the death toll from 1986 to 2004 at 985,000. Just a bit different from the official WHO estimate. Because of all this, Independent Who, a grassroots movement, held a daily protest from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. in front of Who headquarters every single working day for 10 years, from April 26, 2007 to April 26, 2017. Their goal was to remind the Who that it is failing in its duty to protect those populations who are victims of radioactive contamination. After a decade of continued official denial, they stopped the protest to focus on other methods. Who and Fukushima? With that track record in Chernobyl, it shouldn't be so surprising that we see more failings for the Who in regards to Fukushima. 
New York Times reported in a piece titled Who Sees Low Health Risks from Fukushima Accident that a study published on Thursday by the World Health Organization on the health risks associated with the disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant suggests that the risk for certain types of cancers had increased slightly among children exposed to the highest doses of radioactivity, but that there would most likely be no observable increase in cancer rates in the wider Japanese population. On this, Allison Katz said, I worked for the World Health Organization myself for 18 years, and since I have left, I have been involved with Independent WHO, which works in the area of radiation and health. The Japanese people are already talking, and they are reporting very, you know, very serious health effects in children that the World Health Organization is ignoring, is not talking about, doesn't mention in its report. You know, at the time of Chernobyl, the people couldn't talk freely. The other major omission is that the World Health Organization has never considered anything except cancer as a health effect. Meanwhile, the Director General of the WHO at that time, Margaret Chan, acknowledges that no amount of radiation is good to get in direct contradiction to the WHO and IAEA. For me, no radiation inside the body is good. Industry influence, cover-ups, denial of science, internal censorship, check, 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 check. Can you believe we're just getting started? Even more in the next part. WHO, Patterns of Corruption, Part 2. We continue to show that the World Health Organization is a corrupted organization. To recap, in part one, we saw the following. How control of the WHO is less useful to think about than influence. How corruption would build in a large organization like the WHO, even if most of the people involved were good. The censorship of a documentary, Trust Who, that critically looked at the WHO. How Big Tobacco was able to influence and infiltrate the WHO in order to continue to rake in profits. Long after this occurred, the WHO put together a committee to analyze how it happened. The report they produced is eye-opening because it's a playbook of tactics, one that other industries are using against the WHO today. A WikiLeaks document dump showing the WHO took policy notes from Big Pharma. How the WHO helped to fuel the opioid epidemic, taking policy straight from what Purdue Pharma wanted, including bad science and overprescribing. A former director general of the WHO, Haftan Mahler, stating Big Pharma is taking over WHO back in 1988. Other whistleblowers, like Dr. Germain Valesquez, WHO director of the Secretariat, being attacked by pharma and locked out of important meetings. The swine flu and how the WHO changed how the grading of pandemic levels were altered in order for Big Pharma to sell more drugs to countries. Several examples of rampant conflicts of interest in employees and policymakers. The WHO's cover-up of Chernobyl and Fukushima deaths, denying radiation causes anything besides cancer. That was part one. Now, let us continue. Who spends more on travel than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria? The Associated Press obtained internal documents showing that the WHO spent $200 million per year on travel expenses. This is more than what they spent on several major diseases combined, including AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. This came out at a time when the WHO was pleading for more funding because it was going broke. Remember Dr. Bruce Alward, the man who pretended not to hear the question about Taiwan's coronavirus response and then hung up the phone? Turns out he racked up nearly $400,000 in travel expenses during the Ebola crisis, sometimes flying by helicopter to visit clinics instead of traveling by jeep over muddy roads, according to internal trip reports he filed. 
Speaking about then-Director General Margaret Chan, three sources who asked not to be identified for fear of losing their jobs, told the AP that Chan often flew in first class. She spent more than $370,000 that year. Always good to strike fear into your employees for telling the truth. Travel is certainly necessary, but are these people using funds that ought to be better spent as their own slush fund? Vaccines are safe and effective, but we don't know how many people they kill. The party line is always that vaccines are safe and effective. Dr. Suma Swaminathan, chief scientist, will tell you exactly that. In this video, you can hear her talk about how vaccines are very safe. Yet then, at the WHO Global Vaccine Safety Summit in Geneva, December 2nd through 3rd, 2019, she said, I cannot overemphasize the fact that we really don't have very good safety monitoring systems in many countries, and this adds to miscommunication and the misapprehensions. Because we are not able to give very good clear-cut answers when people ask questions about the deaths that have occurred due to a particular vaccine, and this always gets brought up in the media, one should be able to give a factual account of what has happened and what the cause of deaths are. But in most cases, there's obfuscation and therefore there's less trust in the system. Here's a deeper dive, including commentary that covers the many different people at the WHO Summit talking about various areas in which they actually don't have good safety science. Links to the videos are available in the report. The goal is universal vaccination. The Immunization Agenda 2030 envisions a world where everyone everywhere at every age fully benefits from vaccines for good health and well-being. Immunization is the foundation of the primary health care system and an indisputable human right. It's also one of the best health investments money can buy. Here's the truth. Most anti-vaxxers aren't really anti-vaccine. They simply want the choice to be able to opt in or out for themselves or their children. Many are ex-vaxxers because someone in their families were injured severely. They want proper education about risks and benefits, aka informed consent, so people can make a good choice about this pharmaceutical intervention. The problem is that choice is being eroded. The WHO and related organizations are very clear that vaccine misinformation is their enemy. Uptake of vaccination depends on limiting the spread of misinformation about the safety and effectiveness of vaccines to sustain trust in vaccines and to build resilience against misinformation. The harm being caused by anti-vaccine messaging, especially on social media, should be addressed by understanding the context and reasons for lack of trust and by building and keeping trust, especially in the face of fear and distrust in traditional establishments. Strategic investments to increase trust and confidence in vaccines, in particular through strong community engagement, would increase community support for vaccines and ensure that vaccination is viewed as a social norm. Contrary to what they say, it is not so much the spread of misinformation, but of real information. People are starting to pick up on this, which is why trust in vaccines is going down, and this is why censorship is increasing. They even are going so far to say that when vaccines cause injuries, they aren't really from the vaccine. Instead, it's all in people's heads, aka immunization stress-related responses. How many times have doctors used this excuse when they simply don't know what is going on? Chronic fatigue syndrome, EMF hypersensitivity, etc. I get it, I agree that misinformation would be best not to be shared, but you know what is labeled misinformation? 
any information in studies that show there are risks to vaccines. That means they're not really clamping down on misinformation, but instead are spreading propaganda. Informed consent by default. The WHO also has a document called Considerations Regarding Consent in Vaccinating Children and Adolescents Between 6 and 17 Years Old, which is an interesting read. Early on they state, for consent to be valid, it must be informed, understood, and voluntary, and the person consenting must have the capacity to make the decision. Yes, I think everyone agrees with this. But then, one of the three common approaches listed on the next page is implied consent. An implied consent process, by which parents are informed of imminent vaccination through social mobilization and communication, sometimes including letters directly addressed to the parents. Subsequently, the presence of the child or adolescent with or without an accompanying parent at the vaccination session is considered to imply consent. In this day and age, after the Me Too movement, guys are scared to make a move on women because they don't have implicit and verbal consent. Yet a medical procedure can be done with less consent than going in for a kiss? Doesn't make much sense to me. Could a pedophile send out information about themselves to parents, such as an arrest record on a postcard, then get away with groping a child saying the parent had implied consent by not keeping them away? Don't think so. Charles Wager, a bioethicist at Western University in Canada, says that implied consent is no substitute for informed consent. Indeed, implied consent is no consent at all. We have no assurance that parents in fact received information about vaccination studies, let alone that they understood it. While this document is focused on adolescence, similar ideas are applied elsewhere. Understand, adult coronavirus vaccination mandates are coming. Whether consent is needed for mandatory vaccination depends on the legal nature of the regulations. When mandatory vaccination is established in relevant provisions and law, consent may not be required. Most of my readers are in the U.S., so you might want to know about Jacobson versus Massachusetts. This Supreme Court case upheld the authority of states to enforce compulsory vaccination laws. The court's decision articulated the view that the freedom of the individual must sometimes be subordinated to the common welfare and is subject to the police power of the state. I do expect that there will be new laws passed or changed to make this easier, as was done in Denmark. The vaccine people are quite clear that they want mandatory vaccines for every person. They might not be able to actually force it on you. Maybe it's fines or imprisonment if you opt out. Maybe it's that they make it so you can't participate in something if you don't get it. We saw this with children not being allowed to go to school in several states. What appears to be the plan is that you will not be allowed to travel without vaccination. So yes, you can opt out, but then you'll lose these privileges. Takashi Kasai, the WHO's regional director for the Western Pacific. At least until a vaccine or a very effective treatment is found, this process will need to become our new normal. We're locked down until the vaccine is here. Understand that is where this is going. Who's breach of ethics with malaria vaccine? All that about informed consent was to help you to understand a study going on right now. Mosquirex, also known as the RTSS vaccine, is produced by GlaxoSmithKline. To give some background, GSK has paid $4.4 billion in fines in the U.S. since 2000 for false marketing and claims, safety violations, bribery, and more. This includes a $3 billion lawsuit where they withheld critical safety data from the FDA. 
GSK also gave $7.365 million to The Who in 2017 and $24 million in in-kind contributions. That's a good way to get tax breaks as you'll get the fair market value for vaccines and drugs donated. A large-scale study led by The Who of Mosquirex effects is being conducted in Malawi, Ghana, and Kenya. This study will involve 720,000 children of which implied consent is given. Congratulations, you have been selected to be a part of a medical experiment, and we won't even let you know about it. Your consent is implied because we sent some pamphlets out even though they didn't disclose all the information about a double death rate in girls in an earlier trial. This violates the Nuremberg Code, you know, what was put in place to stop medical experiments such as the Nazis conducted. Why is this worrisome? A BMJ article sums it up well. Phase 3 trials of the RTSS malaria vaccine identified three safety concerns, higher risks of meningitis, cerebral malaria, and doubled female mortality. Owing to the urgency of improving malaria control, the World Health Organization intends to decide on extending the vaccine to other African countries after only 24 months using the prevention of severe malaria as a surrogate marker for overall mortality. Severe malaria is not a good marker for all-cause mortality. It is not even a good marker for malaria mortality, as data indicate that case fatality from severe malaria might be higher in the malaria vaccine group. An early decision after 24 months might be biased in favor of the vaccine, which was more efficacious in the first year of follow-up in the Phase 3 trials. The relative risks of both cerebral malaria and female mortality increased after the booster dose at 20 months. We recommend that the pilot studies use overall mortality to assess vaccine performance and that the study populations are followed for the full four to five years of the study before a decision on rollout is made. Meanwhile, the study specifically violates the Malawi constitution which states, no person shall be subjected to medical or scientific experimentation without his or her consent. Right now, there's a petition on change.org that's just under 6,000 signatures away from the 35,000 needed to try to change this. More details about this can be found in this article. There are so many issues around the WHO's use of vaccines. Just to give a taste of some others, the open letter from international organizations to the WHO on the issue of vaccine safety states, in your previous meeting, you advocated for less independent testing, considered redundant, in order to speed up the supply of products. The recent administration of 250,000 defective vaccines in China, the tragedy of the oral polio campaign in India with over 450,000 cases of paralysis and death, the damage caused by the dengue vaccine in the Philippines reports from all over the world of chronic pain and paralysis after administration of the HPV vaccine show that vaccine safety and efficacy are being tragically disregarded in this drive for fast-tracking approval and easy certification. The COVID-19 pandemic. Let's turn gears to look at some of the other controversial parts of the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Separating families for quarantining. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a safe and dignified manner. Dr. Michael Ryan, Executive Director of WHO Health Emergencies Program. I don't know anyone who would agree that it's a good idea, do you? It's not hard for anyone to imagine this becoming even more totalitarian if all the state has to do is show that you've tested positive and you disappear. Believe the WHO or believe the WHO? 
More than 50% of our planet is in some form of lockdown. There's the ever-popular social distancing. There are travel restrictions and curfews. Contact tracing is the new hot technological term. How well do these work? Turns out the WHO wrote a report in October 2019 that, that looked specifically at the scientific evidence for them. The WHO follows the best science, right? The best science money can buy. So it was interesting to find that their own scientists said what we're doing isn't the way to go. All those mentioned above had little to no scientific evidence. See the chart in the report. Notice what is not recommended in any circumstances and extraordinary measures. Home quarantine of exposed individuals to reduce transmission is not recommended because there is no obvious rationale for this measure and there would be considerable difficulties in implementing it. And yet, here we are quarantining even non-exposed people. Dr. Mike Ryan, who wants to separate families as deemed necessary, has stated, there is no specific evidence to suggest that the wearing of masks by the mass population has any potential benefit. In fact, there's some evidence that suggests the opposite in the misuse of wearing a mask properly or fitting it properly. Yet regarding masks, the same report states, recommended for symptomatic individuals and conditionally recommended for public protection. Given the costs and the uncertain effectiveness, face masks are conditionally recommended only in severe influenza epidemics or pandemics for the protection of the general population, but are recommended for symptomatic individuals at all times. If they can't even get masks right, the CDC similarly flip-flopped on the matter, do you really trust them with bigger health issues? Who urges Sweden to revise course? The World Health Organization is skeptical of Sweden's approach, noting a fresh surge in the country's infections. The WHO told CNN Wednesday that it's imperative that Sweden increase measures to control spread of the virus, prepare and increase capacity of the health system to cope, ensure physical distancing, and communicate the why and how of all measures to the population, reports CNN. Earlier on during the pandemic, I was rooting for Sweden to not cave into the political and media pressure. I felt it was important that they stick to their guns so that we have a control group compared to all the countries who locked down. So far, so good. Time will still tell, but it seems that this is spun in each direction depending on which set of facts you look at. Unfortunately, even if this is the case, it will be explained away as an aberration because that is how you control the narrative. Antibodies equal no immunity. In their April 24th update, the WHO said there is currently no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. No evidence is a strong phrase, not to mention one that flies in the face of how immunity tends to work. Yes, there certainly are some cases of people being infected with SARS-CoV-2 more than once, but does that make for no evidence? This caused another uproar, and the WHO walked back their statement the next day tweeting, Earlier today, we tweeted about a new WHO scientific brief on immunity passports. The thread caused some concern, and we would like to clarify. We expect that most people who are infected with COVID-19 will develop an antibody response that will provide some level of protection. This whole concept is more interesting because antibodies are how most vaccines work. This gives rise to the idea, with fast-mutating coronavirus strains, that it would need to be an annual shot like the not-very-effective influenza vaccine. Funding and defunding the WHO Personally, I think Trump's calls to defund the WHO are a good move. On April 14th, he said, Today I am instructing my administration to halt funding of the WHO while a review is conducted to assess the WHO's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. 
The interesting thing about this is that if that comes to pass, it makes the Gates Foundation the biggest funder of the WHO, so we'll turn there next. But first, look at just how much Big Pharma contributes. This is from the 2017 report. Bayer, $1,158,060. Bristol-Myers Squibb, $215,730. GlaxoSmithKline, $7,365,666. Gilead Sciences, $3,124,450. Hoffman LaRoche, $6,628,090. Merck, $1,912,226. Novartis, $500,000. Sanofi Pasteur, $9,411,491. Sanofi Adventis, $2,634,963. I listed just some of the more recognizable pharmaceutical companies' names. This does not include the many organizations that these companies contribute to that then contribute to the WHO, such as the CDC Foundation, $3.2 million, Rockefeller Foundation, $748,945, and many others. And overall, it's not that much compared to the total $2.1 billion privately donated that year, compared to the $1 billion from member states, that is governments. But understand that these donations are devoted to specific projects as picked by the donors. Can you say conflicts of interest? You can read more about how these financial contributions violate the WHO's own guidelines in this article. WHO largely funded by Gates Foundation. Looking at the same 2017 report, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave $324,754,317 to the WHO. This is in addition to Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which the Gates Foundation is heavily funding, which gave $133,365,051, or the Global Fund, which gave $16,170,654, which the Gates Foundation has pledged $650 million from 2017 to 2019. I start with this sharp criticism from a WHO employee of the Gates Foundation's influence. Arati Kochi was the chief of the malaria program at the WHO, he complained to then-Director General Chan that the money could have far-reaching, largely unintended consequences. In 2008, New York Times reported, Many of the world's leading malaria scientists are now locked up in a cartel with their own research funding being linked to those others within the group, Kochi wrote. Because each has a vested interest to safeguard the work of others, he wrote, getting independent reviews of research proposals is becoming increasingly difficult. Also, he argued, the Foundation's determination to have its favored research used to guide the health organization's recommendations could have implicitly dangerous consequences on the policy-making process in world health. Kochi, an openly undiplomatic official who won admiration for reorganizing the world fight against tuberculosis, but was ousted from the job partly because he offended donors like the Rockefeller Foundation, called the Gates Foundation's decision-making a closed internal process and, as far as can be seen, accountable to none other than itself. Moreover, he added the Foundation even takes its vested interest to seeing the data it helped generate taken to policy. There have been hints in recent months that the World Health Organization feels threatened by the growing power of the Gates Foundation. Some scientists have said privately that the foundation was creating its own WHO. 
Another New York Times article from 2017 wrote that the Gates Foundation has claimed for itself a core who row, diagnosing the world's health problems and identifying the solutions. That's interesting. Just because Bill Gates was formerly the richest person on the planet, he's become qualified to diagnose and solve the world's health problems? As many people point out, he is not a doctor, not medically trained, not scientifically trained, instead a businessman. As a political article put it, some billionaires are satisfied with buying themselves an island. Bill Gates got a United Nations Health Agency in Geneva. Kochi is not the only critic. Far from it. Some details from the political article. The term often used was monopolistic philanthropy, the idea that Gates was taking his approach to computers and applying it to the Gates Foundation, said a source close to the Who board. However, his sway has NGOs and academics worried. Some health advocates fear that because the Gates Foundation money comes from investments in big business, it could serve as a Trojan horse for corporate interests to undermine whose role in setting standards and shaping health policies. But the Foundation's focus on delivering vaccines and medicines, rather than on building resilient health systems, has drawn criticism. And some NGOs worry it may be too close to industry. There's a reason I wrote Robert Barron Philanthropists. I believe Gates is today's prime example of just that. The fact is you do not have to believe he's an evil eugenicist to see that there are problems with his approach. I hope to clearly outline the various possibilities so we'll be exploring details about him more in the future. Trust the who? Mainstream, media, and big tech all do. AP News reports, for years now, people at The Who have been pressuring big tech to take more aggressive action against anti-vaccination misinformation. With the pandemic, censorship has kicked up another notch. Andy Pattison is the manager of digital solutions for The Who. Pattison said he and his team now directly flag misleading coronavirus information and at times lobby for it to be removed from Facebook, Google, and Google's YouTube service. These and others, like Twitter, have been cracking down in unprecedented ways. In fact, you'll be censored if you say anything that is not following the guidelines of the WHO. Yep, the people that have this track record I've been sharing are the definitive authority for the world and your information. A few days ago, CEO of YouTube, Susan Wojcicki, said they'll ban anything against WHO guidelines. This includes anything that is medically unsubstantiated. So people saying, take vitamin C, take turmeric, we'll cure you. Those are examples of things that would be a violation of our policy. Let me get this straight. The WHO is the authority who chooses which information is correct. So what are the big tech people supposed to do when the WHO contradicts themselves regarding transmission of disease, wearing masks, or a variety of other things. Twitter really should have deleted the WHO's tweet that there was no evidence of antibodies giving immunity. I haven't seen anyone saying that they have cures for coronavirus, though I'm sure they're out there. I see a lot of people talking about how vitamin C is necessary for immune system support. It seems to me this message should be propagated rather than clamped down on. Type in vitamin C immune in PubMed and you get 989 results. The second of these is intravenous vitamin C for reduction of cytokine storm and acute respiratory distress syndrome. This review concludes, it is believed that IV vitamin C has been particularly effective by inhibiting the production of cytokine storm due to COVID-19. And now, I am officially a spreader of misinformation. Oh wait, I've been doing that all along because I've been talking about vaccines in other than glowing terms. Meanwhile, the FBI raided a spa that offered high-dose IV vitamin C to support people's immune systems, particularly frontline workers like hospital staff. 
This is what happens when the medical cartel makes the rules on what we can do and say. Closing thoughts. Having explored all this, it is abundantly clear to me that the WHO is not really about health. They're about disease. It's a pharmaceutical disease care model all over and little else. This is further and further being propagated into mainstream and online media, notably through censorship. While I'm sure there are still good people around, it is clear that the conflicts of interest are rampant, which breeds corruption. The WHO is influenced heavily by Big Pharma. They're influenced by Gates, who appears to be intimately involved with the medical cartel. The WHO is influenced by China's Communist Party, which is a whole other layer. And to be honest, I'm not sure how that fits in with all the rest, though I figure I'll find some more when digging deeper into Gates. It comes down to this. Do you believe that pharmaceuticals are the route to health? No? Then the World Health Organization is not your authority. Health does not come from a pharmacist. It does not come at the tip of a syringe. I'm not saying those don't have their uses either, but it seems to me if the WHO was really about health, things would be far, far different.